Well, we are quite the crew today, aren't we? Wow. Hey, my name is Pastor Jeremy. I am not normally like this, but I am thankful for all the church's encouragement and generosity and support and blessings uh, throughout my little surgery thing here. Um, we have a very generous church and considerate and kind people, and I'm thankful to have the privilege of serving you. Today, I'd like to tell you a little story about this last week. You know that I enjoy humor quite a bit, and it seems that the Lord also enjoys being humorous quite a bit with me as well. So, a couple weeks ago, I had my surgery, and this last week, I had my follow-up post-op appointment, and I'm, you know, pretty excited about this. I'm hoping to hear good news. I want to get the yucky bandage off, and it's been a while, and so I'm going to the doctor's office, and I'm headed in, and it's a doctor's office, right? And you've been holding this thought in the back of your mind for a long time and trying not to pay attention to it, and now you're there, and it's in front of your mind. Man, I hope this goes well. And you're trying not to spiral or go down the track of all the what-ifs and horrible bad things that could happen. Meanwhile, there's a lot of people in there, and there's somebody talking loud on their phone, and the TV's going, and it's just, it's not a great situation for me. I'm just being honest. I'm going to be real. I wasn't feeling too great at the time, and maybe, maybe some of you would have held up better, but at the moment, I was just like, ah, oh, struggle. Ugh. Okay, what do I do? All right, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible, you know? That's where it's at, and I'll just pick up from where I left off yesterday. So I pick up my Bible to Second Chronicles. Anyone know which passage? Okay, good. Somewhere in Second Chronicles. And uh, I begin to read just where I picked off the day before. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm in the podiatrist's office, okay? Foot up. Here we go. Looking for some encouragement. Come on, encouragement. Here we go. The rest of the events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are recorded in the books of kings of Judah and Israel. Okay, not feeling it quite yet, Lord. (laughs) In the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a serious foot disease. (laughs) I kid you not, I read this. In the podiatrist's office. All right. Keep reading. Yet, even with the severity of his disease, he did not seek the Lord's help, but turned only to physicians. (laughs) And so, he died. I am not kidding. <laughs> Second Chronicles 16, 11 through 14. My Bible reading last Wednesday. Oh, Lord, we praise you. <laughs> Amen. God is good all the time. Amen. So I want to make uh, a, several different points today. And really, I guess the main point is this, is that our Redeemer redeems. Our Redeemer redeems. Our Redeemer redeems. Wow, that's profound, Pastor Jeremy. (laughs) How'd you think of that? Well, it actually is profound. There's probably nothing more profound than this. And 
We see it in a lot of different ways, but today in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to see it in a very specific context. And so I want to walk you through those spots where you see God's redemption playing out. But before I do so, I want to unveil my cards and sort of say this is what's happening uh, in my thought process as I'm thinking theologically about the text and also hopefully biblically. This is the overall um, premise that's guiding these conclusions. And so here are three things I want to give you today. We can leave it on the first slide for just a second, but I want to give you a premise, a place, and a promise. A premise, a place, and a promise. An underlying premise, a place where you see that happening, and then a promise for you in your life. My intent is that this is an encouragement. This is, it should be an encouraging sermon. This is not a um, kick in the pants or a come on, let's go, or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, no, this is the completed work of Christ, accomplished it, and therefore you can rest on that fact. This is a gospel sermon. Our Redeemer redeems. Here's the premise then. Everything is broken. Would you agree? Everything is broken. Kids, if you're not at the point yet where you feel broken, eventually you will. Trust me. (laughs) Illustration. Here we go. Everything is broken. Everything is in the process of breaking. Not all is well, both in our lives, in the world, in our relationships, in our thoughts, in our feelings, our desires, down to our very core, our DNA. It's all broken. Everything is broken. But, but, but God, but all will be made whole. Everything is broken. All will be made whole. This is the guiding principle, I think, of Christianity. This is what's from beginning to end. The start, the middle, the finish. Everything is broken, but all will be made whole. Now, the place we see that today in particular is in the arena of relationships. You're going to hear stuff about servant and master or employee, employer or child and parent. How do children relate to their parents? There's some brokenness there. And so the Apostle Paul has to coach us and help us in that saying, here's what you need to do, children, to do well with your parents. Parents, here's what you need to do to do well with your children. Servants, here's what you do to do well with your masters and masters. This is how your master wants you to treat your servants. But all of that together is simply to say that the relationships are broken and they're being redeemed. And this is the place where we see it, that premise. And so then after the premise and the place, you'll get a promise. And the promise is this, is that when we serve our Redeemer, He redeems our service. When we serve our Redeemer, He redeems our service. Whether it's incomplete, imperfect, messed up, whatever, He redeems it. And similarly, when we serve our Redeemer, He redeems our circumstance. Whether it's messed up, perfect, or whatever, he redeems it. So, a premise, a place, and a promise. Promise is that we have our service and our circumstances redeemed. So let me start with the first one then. And this is more broad. This is more theological than um, expositional. This is more big picture. And I want to show you where I'm getting this. Here's, here's where I'm pulling this. Romans chapter 5, one of the best best passages in the entire Bible. First Adam, last Adam. Adam, Jesus. Adam, Jesus. One failed, one wins. One loses, the other wins. Jesus wins, Adam loses. But here's what happened when Adam failed, when Adam lost. 
When Adam sinned, then sin entered the world. It was perfect before then. He opened the floodgates of hell and it came rushing in. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. This is Christianity's explanation for everything bad. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? How come? Because of sin. Fundamentally, the root cause of all suffering in the entire cosmos is sin. There would be no suffering were it not for sin, but sin started suffering. Sin started us down that path of relational disruption. Look at the first two brothers. They didn't do so well. And then death. Sin entered the world and sin brought death. So death spread to everyone because all have sinned. The Pope, Mother Teresa, everybody. All sinned except for one. The second Adam. So when sin entered... Everything broke. Everything's broken, but Ephesians tells us. We'll get there. Don't show the slide yet. Ephesians tells us this, that all will be redeemed. Here's the thing. Every commendation or every encouragement or every exhortation that we see in chapters 5 and 6 are based on the theology of chapters 1 through 4. So you can take a verse from chapter 1 and tie it directly to chapter 6. Everything that this is commanding you to do is based on what Christ already did. You can't do it if Christ didn't do it. You will be just like that other Adam. But to win, you have to be in Christ, not in Adam. And so the plan from the very beginning, Ephesians chapter 1, is that God doesn't create the world and go, oops, oh my goodness, I dropped it, it broke. But instead, he says, aha, I knew it, I'd planned this from the beginning, here's how this is going to go. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, we see this, even though Adam broke it, God will fix it. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption. Our Redeemer redeems. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery that we did not understand His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ, that all things, for the fullness of time, all things are summed up in Him. Things in heaven. And on earth, the entire cosmos comes together in Christ. In him, we live and move and have our being. In him, in Christ. So everything is broken, but all will be made whole. That's my premise. If that's not true, go home. We are wasting our time. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So, number one, in him, all things are redeemed. That's the principle. Now, the place that we see it playing out today is in relationships. In relationships. Don't raise your hand. Who has a broken relationship? Yeah, there's a lot of those. And what happens is we hope for those relationships and we pray for those relationships. And we have certain promises, but I want to be very specific about the promises we have in those relationships. And so today what we're going to do is examine the parent-child, servant-master relationship. Now look, parent-child, I mean, that ranges from birth to the grave, right? I mean, you may be grown, your children are gone. This is not a sermon on 
um, raising young kids. This is a sermon on how do parents and children relate to each other. How do servants and masters do so? In a broken world, in broken relationships, how do we function? Now, let's say this. Let me be clear. Um, not, now, it depends on how you define redemption. And I'm going to specifically define it for you here in a minute. Because I just said everything will be redeemed. But it depends on what we mean by redemption. Judas betrayed Jesus. Right? Judas betrayed Jesus. Did those two ever hug it out? No. That relationship was never reconciled. Relationships between believers and unbelievers do not have the promise of ultimate reconciliation. Okay? God promises that he will redeem and restore all believers. And I know that hurts because a lot of us suffer from a relationship with a loved one who may or may not be believing in Christ right now. And what that means is this, is regardless of the pain or suffering that you're going through, God will restore you. But he doesn't promise to restore that relationship. The relationships that he promises to restore are those between believers in the new heavens and the new earth. So... What that means is if you have a relationship with a fellow brother or sister in Christ and you have parted ways because it cannot be reconciled or redeemed, very well. But in the end, in heaven, God will make all things clear. And there will be no hiding from your sin and there will be no hiding from their sin. And it will be revealed unto them and it will be revealed unto you. And you will reconcile. You don't get to be unreconciled in heaven. That is not accepted. And so Jesus will reconcile you. And then he'll wipe away every tear from every eye after you've made your peace. So believers will be reconciled, but there's no promise like that for unbelievers. Jesus and Judas? No. Judas hanged himself, fell to the pit, was split, and went to hell forever. Hitler, no reconciliation. There is redemption. What? What do you mean? I'm not a universalist, but I am this. I'm a believer in God's eternal plan and his eternal power. And so what that means is, with regard to Judas, with regard to Judas in particular, he was absolutely necessary for the perfect plan of God. Judas still accomplished God's will. God's will in him before the foundation of the earth was to reconcile all things in Christ. For Christ to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, be betrayed and handed over for silver, he had to have a Judas. Jesus picked Judas on purpose to be a part of his team, knowing what he would do. And as a result, even though that relationship is not reconciled, it is still redeemed. Because through that broken relationship, God saves the world. And so I'm telling you, you may have a Judas or a betrayer in your life. That doesn't mean that you will reconcile, but it does mean that it could be redeemed. That through that brokenness, God will do something great. This is the pattern we see him working out. So understand, when I say relation, all relationships will be redeemed, I don't necessarily mean they will be reconciled like we'll be buddy-buddy best friends forever. What I mean is God will use those things to bring him glory as you trust in him. Amen? Okay, so then, with that said, the place where we see everything broken, everything being redeemed, is in relationships. Relationships are broken, they will be redeemed. 
all relationships will be redeemed one way or another. So then, there's a key word which tells us in the relational sphere in which that happens. I will enunciate that word significantly, and I hope you'll pick up on it. It actually occurs seven times, even though it's translated in different ways. But every time it is, I will pounce on it. Then I'll ask you afterwards, what is that word? Be ready. Watch for it. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Here, there's the premise and the place. We're looking at the place now where redemption occurs. Children, obey your parents in the Lord... For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you. That you may live long in the land. Fathers. Also could be translated parents. Do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Of the Lord. Bond servants. Obey your earthly masters. Earthly. Earthly masters. Why? With fear and trivialing. With a sincere heart. As you would. Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing whatever good anyone does, listen to this mothers on Mother's Day, whatever good anyone does, wiping bottoms, filling sippy cups, cleaning up the mess, this they will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Masters, actually, this is the same word I've been pouncing on the whole time. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what then do you think that special sphere or relationship is in which all relationships are redeemed in the, okay, one more time, in the Lord. Exactly right. You see the word master is also kurios, which is the same word for Lord, like you would think of in the medieval era, yes, my Lord. And that is why you have earthly master contrasted with your master all, all caps, the true master, the one master. So the premise is that everything is broken the, and that all will be made whole. The place is in relationships. And the promises are these. There's two promises. Number one, when we serve our redeemer, he redeems our service. Let me show you how that works. In this passage, we are addressing servants and masters, children and parents. And in a similar way, it's basically an authoritative relationship. So, for example, over children, you have mom and dad. And then I'm just going to draw some lines because this is as good as it gets for me. We're going to say X's and O's. These are children. However many you do or don't have, whatever. Here's... Here's the idea. There's mom and dad. But then above mom and dad sits someone far more important than that. And that is God himself. So reigning over and above everything is God. 
And what God does, whether it's to mom and dad, or whether it's to um, masters, is that he delegates authority. Theirs is a representative or ambassadorial authority. It is not a real authority in the sense that it originates from them or they have any right to it whatsoever. But instead, it is authority that he has given them, that he's entrusted them with. It is a stewardship. Your children do not belong to you. They belong to God. They're his children that he loaned to you to raise for a particular time. And then, just like Hannah, you give them back. That's the idea. So too with masters. You don't own anybody. Only God owns things. What you do is represent him. So if you have employees or if you have direct reports or you have whatever, you don't own them even though you feel like you do because you have, you know, the power of the purse or whatever. But instead, God says, no, 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 they're mine. All things belong to him. And so the masters are over the servants. And so what this passage asks you to do is when you serve, regardless of what relationship you're in, maybe you're serving your mom and dad because they're failing in their health. Or maybe you're serving your master at work and they seem impossible to please. I can't ever please this person. What am I going to do? What you do is your service is rendered not to man, but instead to God. Whether you are a child whether you're a servant, whether you're a master, whether you're a parent, it doesn't matter. His ownership of everything trumps all the rest. Now, that is actually an encouraging thought because you may work for somebody and they are impossible to please. I can never please this person. Great, good, fine. You don't have to. The only one you're actually trying to please is God. And in fact, Jesus is very easy to please. He is. I'll show you how in just a minute. And I hope that this sermon, again, is an encouragement to you. Not an exhortation to be discouraged, but instead a place to find encouragement. So, how then do I honor Christ? Well, here's how. Verse 5 says this in Ephesians chapter 5. You honor Christ by serving his representative authority, whether it's a bondservant or a parent or whatever, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. You're not serving them. You're serving Christ. Hear that. If, if you don't hear anything else, kids, parents, adults, everyone, hear that. You are not serving anyone other than Christ. Your service is to Jesus. So when you serve people, you do so not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but instead as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so when you serve, when you're told to do something, when you obey, when you try to do what's right, you ask yourself this one single question. There is one single question that gets you through, and it is this. Did I honor Christ? Did I honor Christ? Did I honor Christ in that situation? And more than likely, you probably know the answer to that very quickly. But let me give you a few other questions that may help if you're still wondering. One is this. What was my intent? What was my intent? In that situation, what was my intent? Was I intending... For their good. 
Was I out to help this person? Or was I out to get my own? Was, why did I do that? If the intent is good, then you're in the right place. But then you move on beyond that and you say, okay, there's the intent, but there's also the tone. And sometimes my intent may have been right, but my tone sure wasn't. And I go into that situation, I start out on the right foot, and all of a sudden I misstep. What then? Well, walk it back. You say, okay, I intended to do well, but here's how I misstepped. And you go to that person, or you go to that thing, and you apologize. You say, okay, my, this, I just messed that all up. I'm sorry. Here's what I said. Here's how it hurt you. Will you please forgive me? Simple and straightforward. Own it specifically. Go for it and say, man, I messed up. This was, yeah, no, it just didn't go well. Sorry. You start with your intent. You go to your tone. And then if it's the case that you had the right intent and you followed through in the proper way, then when you ask a question, did I honor Christ? You can probably say yes. Yes. If, if I did not blow it on intent or tone, I'm probably in the right place. And if that's the case, that is the only question we have to answer. That is the only question. Sometimes parents, you're discouraged at the end of the day, moms, dads, whoever, because you're like, man, oh, I'm trying so hard. Do you have any idea what I'm doing for you? And the answer is no, they don't. But there is someone who does. There's a God who sees, and he sees every single little itty-bitty thing you did. Good or ill. And hopefully mostly for good. And this is what happens in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 8. It says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this they will receive back from the Lord. Whether you're bond servant or free, there's no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter. If you did it well and nobody else noticed, it doesn't matter. God saw it and he will reward your good works. Each and every one of them. And when you sit there and you receive the negative response and you're discouraged and you're just like, you need to ask yourself the question, did I please the Lord? Did I please the Lord? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Remember that? Did I please him? If so, conversation's done. It doesn't matter if they're not happy. I pleased the one person I needed to. And he accepted it as long as I came at it with a sincere heart. Remember that previous verse. As long as I had a sincere heart, God is happy. So the promise then is that he redeems our service. Number one, everything is broken, but God will fix it. Number two, the place in which we see this is in relationships. Doesn't matter if you're a parent, child, master, servant, doesn't matter. God is at work in these relationships and he will redeem our service. That's a promise. And number, number three, The the second promise is this. When we serve our Redeemer, He redeems our circumstance. When we serve our Redeemer, He redeems our circumstance. Let me give you an example of an extremely negative circumstance, okay? This is basically just about as bad as it gets. And the reason I want to use this one is because in this text, we hear things about servants and masters, and that's kind of euphemistic, but we know the reality of our history within the United States, this horrible, horrible thing called slavery that we did, that we are guilty for, that disgust God, and it has terrible, terrible consequences and implications for our society. Horrible. No excuse. The Bible never condones it. It's bad. But I'll, sh- I'll show you how God works 
even in bad situations, like Judah, sorry, Judas, and like Hagar, a slave. She's a slave, okay? And so, how does God work things for good in her situation? Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 says this. I'm just going to read it. This is my illustration, this biblical story that happened, okay? Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's a big deal in that culture. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, oh, I got an idea. I'll fix this. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Why not allow him to help you bear children? Instead, her plan is, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, instead of leading his wife, listened to his wife. And so after he had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into, he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she took advantage of it. And she looked with contempt upon her mistress. Ha, ha, ha. Now I've one up to you. You used to be my boss. Now look, who's the beloved now? And Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong you done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw, she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servants in your power do as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. It must have been really harsh because evidently Hagar fled for her life. The angel of the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, by the way, Sometimes this is a special phrase. In this case, it is. Sometimes, not always, it means Jesus. This is before Jesus became a human. He was often represented as a pre-human or pre-incarnate being called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. What? Go back to that horrible situation and put up with it? Why in the world? Well, listen, everything's broken, but it will be redeemed. Everything is broken, but it will be redeemed. This thing is really broken, but God's going to redeem it. The angel of the Lord said to her, here's a promise for you, Sarai. This is not a promise for us, church, but this, or sorry, Hagar. This is a promise for you, Hagar. This is an amazing promise. I will surely multiply your offspring. You're a slave, but you're going to become like the ultimate ruler. So that they cannot be numbered for, for multitudes. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're pregnant. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael, man from God. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. And his hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So here's what Hagar learns from that situation. Not having the scriptures like we do. Which she begins to understand God. And what Jesus is like. And so this God who has no name at this point. She gives him a name. And she calls him by a name. Which represents what he is doing. She says, this is the name of the Lord's 
spoke to her, aha, you are a seeing God. Nobody else saw my plight, but you did. You are a seeing God. For she said, truly, I have seen. Listen to this name of God. This is the name of God for you today, church. He who looks after you. That is what you can call Jesus. He who looks after me. Did you hear that? Here is another name of Christ. He who looks after me. This is the well of living water. Therefore, the well was called Ber Laharoi. And this is where it's at. See, everything's broken, but it will be redeemed. In the United States, slavery is this unequivocal evil. Sometimes critics of Christianity will say, hey, the Bible never condemns slavery. See, it's just culturally conditioned. No, no, the Bible condemns it in every way, but not in the way that you're looking for. The Bible doesn't say slavery is bad, but what it does say is human beings are made in the image of God. And what it does say is every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord with thrones of people from every tribe and nation gathered around. What it does say in Philemon is that Onesimus, the runaway slave, is to be received back as a brother, not as a servant, but a full member of the household. What it does say is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Over and over again, it fundamentally undercuts any presupposition of slavery whatsoever. The only person who can own you is God. And if you serve any other master, it doesn't work and it's wrong. You see, the relationship that we're in is not controlled or dominated by this earthly, fleshly thing, but instead it is transcended and superseded by the most important one of all, and that is God. He is your Redeemer. He buys you, and not with money, but with blood. And in this relationship, he receives the whipping, not the slave. Wouldn't you want a master like that? Why would you serve an earthly master? We serve God, not man. Slavery stinks. The Bible condemns it. It doesn't go after institutions or particular governments or politics or policies. Because if it did, think how many it would have to outlaw. Basically, everyone we've ever had. There's only one that works, and his name is Jesus. He is the Lord, capital L. So it's not going to say, yeah, in Rome, there's X million number of slaves. We condemn that. Yes, in medieval Europe, there's fiefdom and feudal lords and blah, blah, blah. And yes, in the United States, there's slavery. And then, yes, today there's the sexual slave trade and all these other forms. No, no, no. It just says, God loves you. He took the whip. He gave his life. Do you really, really think that there's any place for this kind of junk in our world? No. That's sin. That's Romans 5. It's completely condemned. Bible makes no room for it whatsoever. But what it does do is this. It says, whatever circumstance you're in, whether you're a slave or free, male, female, whatsoever, once you're brought into the household of faith, it doesn't matter. You're part of the family of God, and God is your father, and he sees you in your circumstance. And there's no partiality. So masters, you be careful. Mom and dad, you be careful. 
God will treat them just the same as he treats you. Because he is a seeing God. He is he who looks after me. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God sees? Do you believe that God sees you today? In whatever situation you're in, whatever is going inside your mind, in your heart right now, maybe you only know it. God sees it. There's no hiding. There's no shame. There's no fear. But God sees. He sees. See, I think some of us, myself included, do not think of God as a seeing God. Because our actions say otherwise. What we say is, uh, Lord, you missed it. <laughs> Didn't you see that? Try this. Get a bucket of blueberries. Maybe a pint. Measure them out between three different people, children, let's say. Give 15, 15, and 16 and see what happens. You can imagine the two with the 15 will cry out, hey, not fair. Because we do, being made, we do, since we're made in the image of God, we do have an internal sense of justice. And we recognize injustice. And we cry out against it, especially when it's against us. But the problem is, is we think that we're the ones to assert it and claim it and enforce it. And as a result, we often exercise authority over people that we don't have authority over. But God says, no, 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 turn the other cheek. Let me take care of it. And if you do, then I will reward every good thing. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. 15, 15, 16, eat your 15 with joy. One talent, two talents, five talents, it doesn't matter. You receive it from the Lord and you trust him to do justly with it. Don't undercut the person next to you because they got something different that you don't have. You praise God for it. Enjoy what he gave you. See, we parents, we adults, we do the same thing, man. Oh, yeah, well, they just got that promotion because or whatever. Luke, just trust God. He is a seen God. He is the one who looks after us. We don't have to cry foul. We can trust him to be fair. See, the premise behind this whole thing is this, is that everything is broken. We're not pretending. It's messed up. But even though it's all messed up, even though it's broken, God will redeem it. The place we see that working out today is in relationships. And the promise that he gives us is, look, he redeems your service. If you do something well, God will reward you for it. You serve Christ. If you're in a bad circumstance, God will redeem it. Look at Hagar. Look at Joseph. Look at Jesus. God will redeem. He redeems circumstances. And so the point is this. I hope you see from the drawing. I hope you hear from the message. I don't know what else you're going to get, but get this. You're not serving them. You're serving Christ. You are not serving them. You're serving Christ. And he's easy to please. He is. Sincere heart. You're doing it because you love him and want to serve him. Check. He will praise you all day long. Clap. Say, good job. You did it. They may not accept it. They may not like it. And they may be impossible to please. But God is happy. And that's the only one you're trying to please. Ephesians 6, 8, whatever you do, whatever good you do, this you will receive back from the Lord. This is an encouragement. Why? 
Because this is our God. Hagar tells us, Genesis 16, truly, you are a God who sees. This is he who looks after me. Father, we praise you and thank you. Thank you for Jesus who looks after us, who gave his life for us, who took the cross upon his back, the sweat on his brow in our place. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us for our sins. I quickly admit that I have, I have been the wrong master many a time. I have used threats. I've used anger. I have uh, said things I shouldn't. I've lost my temper and messed up. I pray, God, that you would please forgive me. Lord, will you help us where we are weak, that you would be strong. Lord, thank you that you reward every good deed, that you see everything, that we can serve you in sincerity with humble hearts. We pray that you would cause us to do so this week, serving God and not man. In Jesus' name, amen.